Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Bill English, the Artistic Director of San Francisco Playhouse. San Francisco Playhouse has been around since 2003. And what is this, the fifth year in the new building? This is the beginning of the sixth, also the beginning of our 15th season. How did San Francisco Playhouse actually begin? What were the origins of the theater company? Well, it definitely began as a brainchild of of Susie and I, Susie Damilano and I. We had been working with another theater company, and we also produced a show, a one-off of our own, and developed a sort of a passion for it. The plays that we did with this other theater company the Actors Theater. We had creative differences and producing differences, mostly. Creatively, we had much in common with them, but as far as how things actually got on their feet, we had some differences of opinion and ended up sort of separating ways from them, although we still work with many of those actors. And we didn't know what we were going to do, and across the street from the Actors Theater was an empty space, and It had been empty for years, and all of a sudden, there was a sign saying, for rent. This is the Shelton Theater where you were before, where um, Custom Made is now? Where Custom Made now is, was originally created by the Actors Theater. So that's where we were working with them. The theater that we ended up starting our company at was across the street, in a building which was owned by a Vietnamese restaurant family, And they were, at some point, going to make it into their flagship San Francisco restaurant. And they never did. And then it came time for them to have to do their earthquake retrofit. And so they put this sign up, but it was a month-to-month lease. So we called up the phone number and went over and looked at it. And, oh, my God, it was a little theater in the back on the second floor. And in the front, a nice little ballroom. Very rundown. Pieces of ceiling fallen in. And so we took it. We signed this month-to-month lease and started putting shows up. And we decided to call it, I think we called it The Playhouse to begin with. And we weren't sure we would end up in San Francisco or Berkeley or whatever, Vladivostok. We didn't have a name. And then it quickly changed to the SF Playhouse. And we literally put up almost three full seasons of work on a month-to-month lease. So it was a crazy thing to do. And it went from SF Playhouse to San Francisco Playhouse? Yes. When we moved into the new space, we thought we had grown up and we deserved a grown-up name without abbreviations. (laughs) So we changed it once again to San Francisco Playhouse, which it will remain. Three years in, you moved across the street into the Actors. Correct. Six seasons, the Actors Theater moved to Bush Street, leaving that space empty. The landlord was happy to have us. We literally bucket-brigaded the theater across the street. How much time did you have to do that? Very little time. We went in there and did some renovations. We rebuilt the stage. We painted. We did a bunch of electrical work while the show was running in the older space. And then we opened up the sixth show of our season 
in the new space, so two weeks. And the new space where custom made now was bigger space for sets, things like that? No, it was smaller, actually. Oh, really? No, the space across the street was, was beautiful. It was big. Why didn't you stay there? Then? Because the Vietnamese restaurant family finally was forced by the city to actually do this retrofit. They gave us notice. So, so we had to leave. When the theater opened up where it is now, around the block. Around the block, yeah. So we haven't gone far. So how did that happen? What was in there before? It started as an Elks Club, and it was the grand meeting hall for the Elks Art Theater. And then I think in the late 80s or early 90s, the Elks Club sort of lost the capacity to administer that entire building, which includes now a hotel. Before, it was just rooms for visiting Elks. And there was a gym in the basement. And so what they did is they leased it out to a real estate holding company, which in turn turned the rooms into a hotel. And that's when Farallon Restaurant was born. And then it became Theater on the Square, which was run by a a great local producer named Johnny Rhinus, who ran it successfully for a number of years and was sort of forced out of his lease by uh, an agreement with SHN, who then took it over, and they basically didn't do much at all in it and left in the middle of the night, left it empty, left their lease. Then it was empty for a while, and the Lorraine Hansberry Company moved in there and they were operating it at 500 seats, big, and didn't succeed. And we had a common board member and learned that they were having difficulties, and so we took over their lease. This space you've been in now, I remember when you first moved in, it was this giant space, and you suddenly, as a set designer, you know, had a playpen. It was too big for us. Because we were coming from a 100-seat theater. Intimacy was our trademark, and I thought our audience would have killed us if we'd moved into a 500-seat barn. So what we did was we built the stage, the existing stage, out over the first eight rows. So we turned it from a 17-row orchestra to a 9-row orchestra. And our old theater had only had eight rows, so it was only one row deeper with a much bigger stage, but nearly as intimate as our space up on Sutter. And now you've got that huge space to work with on stage. On because stage, of that. it's practically Broadway level size, you know. Right, which means you can do things like you did for barbecue and right. for other sets. That changes you because you're basically the set designer, Bill English. That changes how you view sets. I mean, I noticed in San Francisco Playhouse. You have little models of some of the sets have <laughs> appeared and disappeared. So and that's when you start, right? You know, usually you start with sketches, and then the director and the set designer pass the sketches back and forth. Or in the case if I'm directing and set designing, I mold them over, you know. And then we develop more sketches, and then from them we go to preliminary designs, and then we build a model. And then we look at the model, we decide if the model it helps us refine a set concept which we've basically agreed upon. In some cases, though, a model can reveal major flaws that require you to almost start over again. Major flaws in the building of the set, you mean? In the concept. Has that happened? Yeah, it's happened several times. I was just, I just had a, a meeting with Nina Ball, who's one of our, when I don't design, I, I try to get Nina to do it. We were remembering that we did 
a set design for a production of a play called The Nether right. a couple of years ago. And we got to the model phase and realized we had to start over because it was just too expensive. We got the word back from our technical director, Zach Sigmund, that we weren't going to be able to afford to build that set. So we had to scrap it and start over. I know on some of the sets, I forgot the name of the show, the one where you actually built a kitchen. Seared. That would have been pretty expensive to build a kitchen on stage. We built the set on the budget we had for set. What we needed to have was sort of an extra big props budget. Jackie Scott, who's our prop designer, we ended up, I think, kind of tripling the prop budget. It's funny because it needed a stove and a refrigerator and ovens and millions of little utensils. What we neglected to consider in the prop budget was the cost of the actual food, which ended up costing us, you know, well over $1,000 for all the salmon and the rice and the the bacon and the arugula and the onions for the entire run. Well, we kind of ended up underestimating our props budget for a show where actual food was going to be prepared. Rod Knapp, who was in the show, told me that one of the highlights for him was actually getting to taste the salmon. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was one of the biggest moments in the play. Our chef has been, like, cooking all night. and You know, there's one scene where he cooks an entire piece of salmon and all the spices and the herbs and the onions and the scallions and the sauce and everything into the pan, which was kind of a ballet, which we had musically underscored. And at the end of the scene, he takes a fork and takes a bite out of what he's done and then dumps the salmon into the wastebasket as the lights black out. So that was a piece of salmon that got lost every night. Nobody really got to eat that one. Bill English, barbecue, it looks like you actually brought in cinder blocks. Are those cinder blocks that you created on stage? Actually not. Actually not. It's styrofoam. Sheets of styrofoam that have been carved into the shape of cinder blocks and then kind of just roughed up and painted to look like real cinder block. It's not real. But the astroturf is astroturf. The astroturf is astroturf, but it is not grass. (laughs) Well, yeah. But we had a lot of fun with the grass because I had lots of samples that I gave our, our set builder and our painter who did a lot of the distressing of the astroturf because I wanted it to look really run down, like it hadn't been watered and it hadn't been mowed and hadn't been reseeded and tromped on. And so there are bare spots and spots that are yellowed and brown and a few spots that are green. And and so they really had a good time making that grass look real. They ended up using like a, a hair shaving cutting, a barber's electric hair thing on the on this turf. I, I have some video somewhere of Zach with this barber's tool literally shaving the astroturf. And that could be seen because you have a balcony, which means you have to make sure that not only is there direct sight, but the sight looking down as well. Yeah, yeah, you want it to look good from above, absolutely, as, as good as you can, from, from in front and above. We've learned over the years that you have to pay a little more attention to people looking down on the set than you would ordinarily think. When you're building the set, Do you actually have people sit in the audience, look down, and comment every step of the way then? Uh, You know, I go up there at a certain point. Once the set is loaded in and basically up, I'll go up in the balcony and look for any dressing or masking that we need to do, which is additional to what, you know, was in the original design. 
And you have a, uh, a potentially revolving stage there, or does that go in just when you're doing something that revolves? No, the revolve that's in there now has been there for a couple of years. I don't know that it'll ever go away. You know, It's a really good one. It's a 30-foot revolve. It's in three pieces. I call it like a donut revolve because it has, it has two outer rings, like a bullseye. So it has an outer ring which runs is at the outside, and then there's a ring inside of that, and each of those is five feet wide. And then in the, in, in the inner, there is a hole, like I call it the donut hole. So you have the donut hole and two rings, and the rings can be moved separately. So you could have one ring going clockwise and another ring going counterclockwise. You could even have all three pieces move. We've used it with the outer ring moving, the inner ring moving, the two outer rings locked together, moving around the hole together. So it's very versatile. And you have a computer that is affiliated with it, so you just yeah. press buttons? Yeah, there's a computer system that was designed by Ed Johnson, who is our automation consultant. And it tells whatever's spinning when to start and when to slow down and where to stop specifically. So you don't yeah, you're just basically pushing buttons. The first show of this season just closed, but I wanted to ask you about it. Barbecue, where did you find it? I read the New York Times review of the public theater production and was intrigued by the format. It's got a very odd and very unique style of storytelling. From reading the review, I thought, oh, wow, this sounds really exciting, so I ordered up a copy. I read the play almost a couple of years ago, I think, and it, it kind of went right by me. It didn't land on me with a lot of impact. And then, oddly enough, after our most recent presidential election, I picked it up again in maybe January of this last year and read it again. And this time, I thought, wow, it just seemed right on the money in terms of where our culture sits right now and the things that we're struggling both with the huge opiate epidemic raging through the Midwest Rust Belt and, you know, with the emergence of alternative truth as a way of life. How'd you get Margot Hall involved? It's a play that got strong African-American themes and written by a young black playwright. I felt like it needed to be directed by someone from that community. And so Margot, of course, is my first always choice in a go-to situation. She's a great director. And she's Margot has acted with us and directed for us. And the sort of fun part of that conversation was I thought, well, Margot Hall needs to be involved in this project. But gosh, she could direct it or she could uh, play the leading character in it. And so I, I put it to her that way. Would you rather direct or act? She said she'd rather direct. But when we started casting, our casting director, Lauren English, who's my daughter, spoke up and said, well, why couldn't Margot just do both? And so we talked about it and decided that you almost never see that in the theater. I don't know whether I can think of five times in my life that I've seen a play with the director in the cast because your sense of perspective is just very difficult. So, But we decided to give it a try, and, and I think it worked out really well. Well, you're lucky in one respect, which is that 
most of her work is in Act Two anyway. That's true. She's really only involved in one scene. So we made the agreement that Margaret would direct, and I would kind of keep my eye on that scene. So you were sort of co-directing the one scene? Not co-directing. I'd say assistant directing because she staged it. And she made all the choices about how she thought the scene should be played. And I just kind of kept my eye on it from the outside to let her know if her vision was being fulfilled. Well, the third party in that is Susie D'Amelano. Did she kind of like let the two of you go? Because she directs a lot. She did. She did. She spoke up. It was was actually an incredibly rewarding time because you had three directors <laughs> working on one scene and the fact that we actually managed to stay out of each other's way and navigate that landscape with you know trust and goodwill and good humor i think was you know not hard to achieve but i think we we did have a wonderful time before we talk about the season that started already, a couple of questions about last season, which I guess began with Seared. She Loves Me, The Christians, Noises Off, The Roommate, and La Cage Faux. Of those shows, Bill English, which are you most proud of? I don't know that I could say. Usually the ones that I've directed are a little closer to my heart. So La Cage I was very, 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 very proud of. Proud of my work and proud of the cast and proud of Jackie's set. Seared, obviously, we were super proud of because it was a world premiere by a major playwright. Is anything happening with that? Seared is being developed in New York. I think there's some people interested in working on putting up a production. We're not taking it any farther. We commissioned it. We commissioned Teresa to write it, and then we produced the world premiere. And then it goes on to whatever. Yeah, it goes on to whatever, yeah. Well, when you're talking about a show like Lacage or A Christmas Story, which is upcoming, or even Sunday in the Park, since these are shows that pop up periodically in community theater, places like that, what is San Francisco Playhouse doing as a regional theater to kind of make it different? Well, with the musicals, partly because of strictly economic necessity, the casts are stripped down. So people are doubling and tripling, which creates a wonderful tour de force for minor characters because somebody's playing two, three, four, five of them. Also, I think because we got our start, and I think one of our sort of signature qualities is that we do kind of cutting-edge, very naturalistic work where we really try to get very, very intimate. You can be sitting right up next to an actor and... And it needs to feel almost like you're, you're, you're in a movie with this actor. So we try to bring that signature naturalism and intimacy to our musicals. Like Gokaj, for example, I was just always nuts about the movie, the original uh, French-Italian movie that was made of the French play. So because Lacage is often produced very campy, very over the top, with great big outlandish performances that don't conform to the rules of naturalism. So I definitely wanted to make it feel like you were watching the movie when you were outside the club. I wanted the club to be huge. In other words, we had over 70 costumes and 32 wigs. But once you were in their apartment, once you're at the cafe, 
you're in the movie. So I wanted it to feel like a very naturalistic play within a play. And I think that's the way we approach all of our musicals. We like to make them as gritty as possible, as very focused on the psychological development of characterization as we can, you know, which makes it challenging to come up with actors who are very strong in realistic dramas, but who can sing and dance as well. It's tough to get actors who would be at home in a kitchen sink realism kind of setting, but who also can do a Christmas story. Let's look at the upcoming season, Bill English. A Christmas Story, the musical, is based on the movie by the same people who did uh, La La Land and Dear Evan Hunter and Dogfight, which you did a couple of right. years ago. Yeah, Pasek and Paul. It, it has an odd history in that it did open on Broadway in 2012 after a national tour, but only for two months, then opened a couple of years later on Broadway, and at the same time that approximately the same time it's going to be at SF Playhouse, Fox Television is doing a live version of it. Yeah. What brought you to decide to do this knowing that it's kind of has a different pedigree than most musicals? It's a little different. You know, I was I saw it in New York and I was I loved it. It's terrific. Pasek and Paul are my idea of the Rodgers and Hammerstein of the 21st century. And having already worked on Dogfight of theirs and seen Evan Hansen, I'm a huge fan. So anything they do is going to catch my attention. It's a great iconic American Christmas story without being a Christmas carol. It hasn't been beat to death right. quite yet. And so I thought everyone will enjoy this. The music is amazing. The show really revolves around uh, a 12-year-old boy, and we have a wonderful young man who's got all kinds of New York credits but is a local actor who's actually an equity actor at the age of 12 who's going to play that role. The set on that one, what have you got? Well, Jackie Scott's designing the set, and it's going to be kind of like a downtown America, USA, with a, a house that the family lives in, and a little storefront that could either be the store or the school, a city skyline, and it's going to be fun. It's going to move and rotate and do all sorts of theatrical tricks. The next show you've got is Born Yesterday, which, of course, 1946 play by Garson Kanan, 1950 movie, Judy Holiday, 1993 remake, revived twice on Broadway with Madeline Kahn and Nina Arianda. Have you cast that yet? Yeah, we have cast most of it, yeah. What brought you to go back to Born Yesterday? You know, I've been interested in doing Born Yesterday for a number of years. I love the play. I think it makes a really brilliant political statement without being specifically political. And I think the most important thing about Born Yesterday is that it talks about the importance of an educated electorate. And I think that since our last election, I think a lot of us have wondered how it is that certain people voted the way they did. I think that this is a particularly good play because if we disagree with the way some of our relatives voted or the way people in other parts of the country voted, maybe we should take some responsibility for trying to help people understand how a democracy works. Well, it's also a kind of early feminist play, very much so. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a play where a young woman who starts out in pretty much complete ignorance about how 
the government works, how politics works, learns how to become a concerned citizen who has agency herself to make choices that will affect the course of the future. Is it easy or hard to get the rights to do an older show like that? Is that very easy then? Usually it's a lot easier to get the rights to an older show than it is to a real new one because there's much more competition for the hot new plays that are being competed for by theaters with more financial clout than San Francisco Playhouse. Well, speaking of that, Bill English, the next show is The Effect by Lucy Preble, which I assume, since it came out of the National Theater in London, you might have had some competition for. You know, I don't really know uh, whether we did or not. It hasn't had a huge number of regional productions. It was done at the National, and then it was done at the Barrow Street Theater and Off-Broadway in New York City and got great reviews. But I don't know that it's caught on with the big theaters around the country. I read Ben Brantley's review, and, I mean, it was an absolute rave. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful play. It's exciting. What's the setup of it? Basically, the play um, takes place in a drug trial where the pharmaceutical company, assumedly, is um, conducting a trial on a drug that's intended to help people who are depressed. But as a part of the drug trial, they're using people who aren't depressed to test them for side effects or whatever. And some of the people in the test are on a placebo, and some of the people are on the drug. And nobody knows which is which. And nobody knows which is which. And two people fall in love. Yes, a man and a woman who are in the drug trial fall desperately, passionately, hopelessly, irrevocably in love in the craziest sort of way. And there's no way of knowing if they're on the drug or off the drug. They have no way of knowing. And this creates a tremendous level of anxiety between the two of them because, as you can imagine, they're worried that they might be the one on the drug and that their feelings might not be as authentic as the feelings of the person who isn't on the drug. Or if they're not on the drug, they worry that their partner might not really love them as much as... You know, so it's a wonderful discourse into how we know and trust our feelings at all. How we know whether what's happening to us is is happening as a result of other things besides our personal process. Who's directing that? I'm directing it. The next show is a world premiere. Etymologist Love Story. It's by Melissa Ross. It's going to be directed by Giovanna Sardelli, who's a very wonderful director. She directed In a Word for us in our Sandbox program, and uh, we're super excited about this play. How did this come about? They did a workshop of it at Theater Works, New Works Festival, which is in the summer a couple of years ago, and Giovanna directed it there. We have a, a fairly big crossover of patrons between Theater Works and San Francisco Playhouse. And so I was hearing this kind of nonstop parade of, oh, you've got to do this play. This is an amazing play. I hope you do this play. And of course, Theater Works had an option to do it. And when they passed, I went after it. And then there was also some possibility that the world premiere would be done at the Labyrinth Theater in New York City. And they held it up for a couple of years, and then finally they released it 
Giovanna is still attached as a director, so that's how it, it came to us. It was quite a process. Well, when it goes from being workshop to actually being the world premiere, does that mean that you're still working on the play before it opens, or is it pretty much set in stone right now? I think it's a fairly finished product, but we may do one more workshop. And there's always, you know, the possibility that the playwright will want to work on it because it's a world premiere, which means the playwright, sometimes they'll tinker with them right up until opening night. (laughs) We usually try to lock the script, like a couple of previews in, so that the actors have at least two previews with a script that they know isn't going to change because you change script at the last minute, you're just courting disaster, in my humble opinion. What's the setup of the play? Two young entomologists who work for the Natural History Museum in New York City. So they're very successful. They're probably in their early to mid-30s. And they were in a relationship that was romantic and aren't anymore, but still live together. And they're kind of symbiotically attached in a way which is not so healthy for either of them. And so the play is kind of about how they undo that process so that they each can go on with finding romantic partners that are going to be better for them. And so it's interesting that their job is to study the mating habits of insects, and our job is to study the mating habits of humans. And the last play of the season is Sunday in the Park with George. You did Company, and you did Into the Woods, Are you going to do the production in a similar way, particularly the end of Act One, as, say, the Broadway production? Well, there have been a few Broadway productions. There was the original with Mandy Patinkin. And And then the revival. Then there there were several revivals. But one of them came from London and was uh, an incredibly brilliant uh, video design. And then the more recent one with Jake Gyllenhaal was very simple and kind of scaled back in terms of the amount of scenery and stuff. And I think because that suits our needs as well because of our size, I think there might be some similarities. I'm going to design the set. I know at this point that I'm going to do a video design. Video design will be a big part of it. We're going to use a rake stage, and, you know, it should be a lot of fun. In Act 2, there's something called the chroma loom, but it's never really clearly defined what this object is, so you can play with that. I don't know exactly what we're going to do with the chroma loom, but something, something hopefully that will be fun for the audience, you know. I've seen the show several times, sure. but let me ask you this. What do you see as the main themes of Sunday in the Park with George? Art of any kind is the theme, and how the artist process is both rewarding and difficult for the artist, and how Art can become an obsession and interfere with the artist's ability to function normally in everyday life. And so it's kind of a battle between life and art. But it's really a a love song to the artistic process, whether it be painting or theater or writing or sculpture. It just is such a beautiful kind of a love poem to art. And I think in a way, it'll be great to see it this coming summer because there's currently a lot of doubt about whether our nation will continue to support art. You know, the National Endowments for the Arts is under fire. 
So I think it'll be really good for us to sort of bring our audience to the forefront of, of standing up for art and standing up for its importance in our culture. Bill English. Okay, this next season is done. How many shows for the following season are set and how many are not set? I mean, how does that work? I'm just really at the beginning of selecting the shows for 1819, and I haven't actually selected anything. But you have some in mind. Yeah, I have eight or ten shows that are on the wish list. I have probably eight shows that I have the rights to that I could do. And then I have another three or four or five or six that I don't have the rights to yet, either because they're so recent that they're still playing on Broadway or off-Broadway, or even though they're available to theaters throughout the country, there is a competition for who gets to do them, which is in process. You know, you get, for instance, ACT or Berkeley Rep are going to get their pick. So I'm actually still waiting to see what they're going to do and what they may not do. And if they don't do it, then that's why I always wait a month or so after the big theaters announce their seasons to announce ours. Well, you've also got a situation where both Berkeley Rep, ACT, actually Theater Works, I think, as well. Theater Works is in that class as well, yeah. Yeah, um, and they're all getting new uh, artistic directors, which is going to change circumstances, and you don't know how because they haven't been picked yet. They haven't. In no case have they been picked yet. I think it's true that all three of the current artistic directors, it'd be like Tony Taccone and Carrie Perloff and Robert Kelly, are picking the 1819 season. So the season in question is still, you know, with current ADs in place. But then it gets hairy afterward. After that, we'll have no direct. Well, I mean, you know, you got to figure that the boards of directors of these theater companies are going to be continuing the general trends that the theaters are committed to now. You know, I don't think it's going to, there's going to, I don't think there's going to be some radical shift in terms of who they select. It seems that with the increased number of new plays that are being generated by local theater companies, is there a dearth of plays that have gotten three, four, or five readings to get to that perfect point? Or is it just happenstance that everybody's suddenly developing new plays? Everybody's developing new plays. It's just a, you know an ep- epidemic of new play development. But I mean that in a good way. I shouldn't have used the word epidemic. It's like a, an outpouring of interest in new work around the country. The problem with that that I see is something that Loretta Greco told me several years ago, and it it got lodged in my head. A play usually needs at least two and possibly even three different productions with different directors to reach that perfect point. Sometimes, sometimes not. You know, did Death of a Salesman need three productions with three different directors? I don't think so. Some plays just come fully born, and they're done, and you do them. And some plays need a longer gestation period. There's a wonderful system in the country called the National New Play Network, to which we are a member. 
That organization is dedicated to providing multiple world premieres. And the Magic Theater is also a member. Marin Theater Company is a member. And you commit to doing a play with the National New Play Network, but there will also be two more world premieres. They call it a rolling world premiere. And we've done three or four of them. And then they're actually funded. You get some funds for your production, and then you know it's going to go on to have a different production with another director and a third production with a third director. So it's a really healthy, healthy system, as opposed to, yes, it's a one-shot deal, and if it gets a crummy review in the New York Times, no one will ever do it again, which is sad, you know. Particularly on shows that are good but need, and there are some great shows that yeah. could be great shows. Well, a lot of the New York theaters, even the nonprofits, are now doing plays that have been tried somewhere out of town. Even Playwrights Horizons and Second Stage, Manhattan Theater Club, The Roundabout, you see that a lot of their shows have been produced somewhere else first. New York is still where a play goes to live. Once it gets to New York, it reaches something. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I guess, you know. I guess. That's also kind of sad, too, you know. I mean, some playwrights that I know have had a terrible time in New York and yet have become widely performed all over the country. And some of them have just turned their back on New York and not allow their plays to be done there. There's one playwright, I forgot his name, who specifically does that. I don't remember his name. Well... I think there are a couple, and I don't, I don't want to speak for them because I've heard this from them, but I don't know how right. rigid they are about it. But I do know a couple of major American playwrights who have told me they just won't go to New York. But their plays are done all over the country all the time. Bill English, do you plan to continue indefinitely the summer musical idea? Uh, yeah, generally speaking. You know, it's funny. In our first season, which only had four shows in it, we maybe even accidentally decided to do a musical in the summer. And it ended up being such a smart decision because you've got the influx of tourists in the summer and you've got people who want to come up to the city and bring their relatives who are visiting them to ride the cable car and see something of culture. So it, it seems like a pretty good pretty good move. I, I don't have any doubts about it. There's a couple of summers we didn't do a musical in the summer. Not recently. And you also can extend them longer. You can. That's kind of ended up being our M.O. because we did the Fantastics and opened it in early June. And then since we had no previous track record, we just ran it all summer. We ran it for 12, I think 12, 14 weeks, and it, it did really well. And so that got to be our M.O., and it's been ever since. Bill English, there's something called the Play Reading Series, which is just one-offs. Once a month, we do a reading on Monday night, and it's always a new play, a world premiere that hasn't been performed anywhere else. And it's kind of fun for us because it's a potluck. In other words, we invite anybody who's ever been to our theater, and we encourage people to bring a bottle of wine or some French onion dip or some muffins or fruit. And so we have this kind of uh, community potluck in our lobby, and people will fill their plates with the various snacks that have been made by lots of people, and we usually fill the house for these readings. And they're wonderful because they introduce a new script, and we often use the reading series as a way to get to know directors who we haven't worked with yet 
and actors who we haven't worked with yet. So it's a kind of a wonderful exposure for our audience to new work, new directors, new actors. And it's usually a Monday, one Monday a month. And then there's The Sandbox, which is a new play series, which isn't necessarily... You've done that over at um, The Roof in The Strand, right? Right. We've done some of our performances there. We've done some of them at the Children's Creativity Theater. We've done some at our old space up on Sutter Street. And this next season, this up current season, the three Sandbox shows are going to be at all three of those venues. One at The Roof one at the Children's Creativity Museum, and one up at our old venue, which is currently um, up on Sutter Street. And these may eventually wind up in the regular season of SF Playhouse. They might wind up anywhere. Yeah, some do. They're all world premieres, and they're new commissions, plays that we've commissioned, plays that have come to us from other parts of the country that have not yet had a production. You've also got something called the Play Project. What's that? It's our educational program that we do in the summer where kids that are part of our Rising Star program, which is a theater attendance program, we have about 500 kids that are subscribers, uh, high school students, and their subscription is paid for by, by one of our own patrons who are our subscribers. They pay an extra $100 to buy a four-play subscription for a high school student. And some of these kids will see 12 to 16 plays over the course of their high school career. Well, when I've been at SF Playhouse, not opening night, but on other nights, I often see a whole bunch of them there. Yeah, yeah, we'll have 40 or 50 kids. We, we don't do what you call student matinees. We mix the kids in with the general adult population, which I think is great because then you get that synergy of adults and kids all reacting to the same show. And we have a talk back afterwards, so we get also the kids and adults exchanging their opinions and questions about a work of art. Are these specifically with schools then? Uh, yes. You, yeah. Mm-hmm. What High schools, schools do you use? Oh gosh, there's about 17 different schools. Some in Oakland, some in San Francisco. A mixture. And we, we work primarily with teachers, with specific teachers at these schools who are willing to drag their kids to the theater four times a year. Christmas Story, the musical... Starts previews on November 22nd and opens officially on November 29th. For more information, you can go to sfplayhouse.org.